following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Hello and welcome back to the Event Safety Podcast. I'm Steve Edelman. I'm really pleased this time uh, to introduce the Event Safety Podcast because for the most part, that's all I'm going to do. Uh, So this is a very luxurious podcast for me because we have Danielle Hernandez from Furman University and Danielle is going to take over the, the controls of this podcast in just a moment once I basically say a couple of words and then get the hell out of the way. So in the Event Safety Podcast up until recently, we've been talking a lot about planning, about things that one should do to build structure. And that's super important. We don't usually talk about training people to implement those plans, to actually follow the structure and make it come to life. And we don't spend a ton of time talking about the basic human foibles that tend to make plans go sideways and then we have to adapt to them. And people who implement plans are different ages, different levels of ability, different levels of skill and training and experience. That is what we're going to talk about today. And so it is my great pleasure to turn this over to Danielle Hernandez, who's going to introduce our other podcast speakers today and talk about the subject of training. Danielle, take it away. Thanks, Steve. I am so excited about this topic. I feel like this is something that is frequently sort of pushed to the side or done as an afterthought, as opposed to planned in from the beginning. Um, And I am super thrilled to have what I consider two fabulously talented experts. Um, One is our dear friend, Janet Celery. She is the health and safety consultant of Celery Health and Safety, and she is the chair of the Event Safety Alliance from Canada. Hooray! Hooray! And then also we have Anna Glover, who is the director of theater safety and occupational health at the Yale School of Drama. So I'm going to give both of these wonderful people just a couple minutes uh, to tell us what their connotation of the term training is and how that is different from others. You know, because a lot of times people get sort of cringy when you say, today we're going to do training. And they go, oh. So, Janet, what do um, you so I, I started doing, I guess you would call it training, um, before I realized I was doing training because we had had a critical injury at the theater where I worked. I was an ASM on the show and the woman who fell from about eight or nine feet uh, was in hospital at the time and we did not know if she was going to survive that incident. So as an ASM, not as a manager, not as anyone who was high up the food chain, I felt it was really important to start talking to people about safety. And so I decided to do a health and safety chat before the next show went into rehearsal. This was pre-internet, so I got some booklets and some brochures, and I stood trembling in front of some of the best actors in Canada, and I talked to them about how they needed to deal with health and safety concerns. So for me, it kind of came backwards. All of a sudden, I was subsequently found out, oh, that's that's what a training thing is. Um, so for me, training is really, it started as a passionate need to tell people 
about how to protect themselves, people I really, really cared about. And so that has been something I've carried with me all this, all this time on various topics in various places. But that's where I sort of started with it. That's so interesting. So much of the time, people view training as something they just have to get through without understanding that the purpose is to save yourself from injury or harm or to save those around you. Anna, what about you? Um, well, thanks, Danielle. First of all, I'd like to say I'm just hugely delighted to be on my first event safety podcast today. Um, and I'm also hugely delighted that we're doing a deep dive into training because, you know, many of us do it. Um, and I think Janet just brilliantly illustrated that it's often driven by need. Um, and it's often really um, intelligent people seeing a need and filling that gap. So having a chance to take a step back and looking at broad strokes is wonderful. Um, for myself, my, my actual uh, first exposure to training didn't actually come in the world of theatre, but I think it's relevant here. Um, for about 13 years, I studied a martial arts um, in the United Kingdom, Hapkido, and it follows a, a wonderful sort of um, arc of training in that you come in as a, as a novice and you kind of work your way up through the belts. And, and that training is led mostly by um, the, the master, master parlor in my case. And I learned a lot of, of training and all of the different styles through master parlor and actually ended up taking on some of those um, techniques and bringing them into my own safety training. Um, which was enormously about l learning how to approach with different people. Um, but I think that the main thing to start with is to say, how do you take someone who has no knowledge of a thing and, and, and something that is inherently risky as a martial art is or as a theatre space can be and bring them up to a level where they can actually become someone who is useful to the organisation and can feel a sense of pride in what they do. So, Awesome. So... One of the, the challenges is, is, as we've all kind of said, is people are in very different places when they start a, a martial art or in a venue as an actor or performer. And we all, as adults, learn just a little differently. Um, one of the perks of my job is I get to eavesdrop on other people's shows and... Uh, at my venue, we did a, a training for teachers. And one of the things the teacher was teaching the other teachers about uh, was how people learn. And I spoke to her afterwards because like, that was fascinating. And I said, some of that really resonated with me. And she's like, I'm going to ask you a question. If we were going to play a board game, how would you want to find out how to do it? Would you like to read the instructions? Would you like me to explain the instructions? Or would you like to play the game? And I said, oh my God, can we just play the game? Because when people explain the instructions to me, my mind, even if I'm trying to pay attention, goes somewhere over there. <laughs> um, and she's like, yeah, so that's the kind of learner you are. And I found that very useful in terms of how I learn from other people is that I make sure that in my head, at least, that I'm playing the game. Um, do you guys have any experience in terms of your personal learning styles and how you incorporate that when you train other people? Anna, let's go back to you. Uh, sure. Um, I, I've Actually, this is fascinating to me. First of all, I'd like to just say we don't 
train teachers or train trainers enough. Uh, many of us have been on train the trainer courses, which are specific to different topics. And I think they're all really valuable, but I think you can never learn enough about yourself as a trainer or a teacher. And I think some of that learning is to unlearn what you may have been taught as a, as a child. So I went on a train the training course um, recently, which was to do with kind of uh, manual handling materials handling. And we talked about learning styles briefly. And I discovered through that, that I'm a very visual learner. Now I'd been told I was very bad at art at school. I had been told that, you know, I'm much more of a word person. So I had embraced that. When, when I was told this, it unlocked a whole new world for me. I was, I do things now with mind maps. I use many more visual items. I think unless you understand who your own learning style, you're going to fail whoever it is you're standing in front of. Um, because you've got to know how best you interpret that information before you're giving it out. And then I think the important thing is never assume that anyone actually knows their own style and try and, and with any training you do, give several different topics. So Janet, I loved what you mentioned about being a nervous person, but gathering the, gathering the information and standing in front of the group of actors and then, and then talking to them. That's so powerful as, as just to start with those toolbox talks. Um, and I think you just talked about that brilliantly with, with that example. Well, it's, you know, as I said, I'm a, I'm a kind of trial by error person um, where the content is really what drives me. And it's truly, although I feel comfortable now more than 20 years into it, I had a lot of shaking voice, shaking knees uh, as I went from my very happy place being in my blacks backstage in the dark to standing in front of people and trying to uh, draw them in, trying to make it interesting for them. And I think one of the keys for me is, um, is really always, always focusing on who you're talking to. So I may deliver the same content to a lot of different people. It may be um, hazardous materials training. So in Canada, it's called WIMAS. I think you guys have HASCOM. Is that the, the name for it? Yeah. So. I do that for all kinds of different manufacturers and suppliers and props people and lighting people and crews and all that kind of stuff, but I never ever do it the same way twice. I always include the introduction about, um, you know, what are the kind of, pro talk to them about what they're going to be using. Because if it's not relevant, it's especially that's a piece of training where it can just become droning on. Most of them know the content already. So I'm really trying to focus on, reflect on the work you do with hazardous materials. And here's some things I want you to consider that are specific to your work. Um, I think it seems to be going over pretty well because when I do my my uh, evaluations afterwards, I tend to get a lot of comments about, wow, I thought that was going to be really boring and it was actually okay. And so that I take as like high praise. <laughs> that is we got to go with that, right? High <laughs> um, so you've already, as, as always, you are one step ahead of me, uh, which is fabulous. How, how, what are some other ways we can customize our topics to our audiences? Because it could be, our audience could be stagehands. It could be designers. It could be actors. It could be touring professionals. I have done a lot of talks to like fourth graders who are doing their big musical here. And I'm like, all right, guys, <laughs> this is what we have to talk about today. How, what are some techniques for nailing the, the needs and 
understanding of the audience that we're speaking to. So Anna, what, if, what's, what are your thoughts? That's really interesting. And first of all, I just want to quickly circle back to something Janet said, the why is 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 so important and it doesn't matter who your audience is um you know that very famous phrase lead, leaders start with why if you if people don't understand why you're giving them the training and they don't think it's relevant it doesn't really matter if it's the world's most interesting thing they won't be bought into. it's not relevant <laughs> it's not relevant and it's funny like children like fourth graders will tell you their what their why is and um and it's wonderful when you when you actually get in front of a group of children you just deliver training because they will spot anything that's false or inauthentic um and call you on it <laughs> absolutely absolutely um so i i want to take a step back i like to um look at the training environment um for the audience right so i think that if i'm talking to um actors or if i'm talking to technicians i try to do it in the spaces that they mostly inhabit where they're very comfortable unless it's distracting so managers i like to take off-site um so that they can't answer their phones that they they aren't like a runner one quick walk away from the office they need to get to um but i also found that i got more bang for the buck when um people were actually in the spaces that they familiar with and then i use music to set a tone so that when people come into the space they are walking into a sea change so i I have some songs playing you know it's not something that i i learned myself um we have some wonderful edi training equity diversity and inclusivity training at yale and uh that is what they do. So you come into a space where music is playing and it just does something to the brain. Like I'm now doing something different. Um, you know, limiting distractions, but playing music is like where, whatever you've been doing, we're now going to have that transition moment. Um, and so I think those are just a couple of things like where the space is and also how I set it up. It doesn't matter who the audience is, but I do try and, and consider, you know, what the audience is. And if I'm training a group of people over a period of time, I ask them for what music they want to, me to play because it just gets a little more buy-in, so. Excellent. So um, that, now you're ahead of me. I was about to talk about buy-in. Okay. Uh, that is the most important thing I find to having people follow this new or hard to adapt to. When we've, I've been doing this a long time, so we didn't used to always wear hard hats. And now we do whenever there's an overhead hazard. And, and the only way I could think of to get buy-in is I brought everybody in a big circle and I said, okay, guys, we're going to switch to this because I think it's important. This is the criteria. We need to wear head protection whenever there's an overhead hazard. When do When is that? And they told me when <laughs> we need to wear a hard hat. So everybody was in the decision making and they weren't wrong so i didn't feel the need to you know add 16 things to it um but sometimes with training the buy-in is well there might be pizza there <laughs> and and while i appreciate that in terms of getting you to the room but what i want you to do is absorb at least at least 90 percent of what i'm saying realistically half of what i'm saying how, how can we improve buy-in how how can we better explain the why especially when it's a it's a long session and we're covering everything from crowd management and and code atom and hazmat and you know overhead safety you know when we're covering all these things how how can we make it relevant Janet, you look like you have an idea. I do. I have an idea. I, agree. Uh, I love this. So one of the things I always try and do off the top is I give people a little bit of my background. I always, um, unless I'm seeing people for a second time, but 
first time, pretty much everyone is going to hear about that 1995 critical injury because that's my personal why. And I ask them to reflect on what theirs might be. If it's not a gigantic group, then I'll always go around the room and ask people to share their name, what they do. Um, and also I'll have another question, usually something like, What's a health and safety concern that you've been thinking about or a question? And I'll write it up on a board and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to cover a lot of this, but if we don't hit your issue and you want to cover it more, let's, we'll have some time at the end to talk about that because then it makes it something that, you know, they, they may have something percolating. You know, I always wanted to know about, where can I get information about performer flying? Okay, well, we can make sure we hit that, even if that's not really what we're doing. And that'll keep them interested until we get along. Um, I find that the whole buy-in thing has kind of changed a bit over time. Um, I used to, when I first started doing training, I was getting, you know, the arms crossed in front of people's chests and saying, well, I'm not coming unless I'm paid. Which surprise? I mean, as an organization, I can see where they got that. We had never, ever paid someone to sit in on training. But the moment I said paid, of course you'll be paid. This is part of your job. That was a flippin' sea change for us as an organization. So that got them in the door. And after that, over, you know, 10 years, suddenly people began to think about training, not just as a punishment, but as something that could enhance their professionalism. And I think that's the thing, you know, when people go, you know, I don't really do this thing, but I wonder if I could get in on the safety training for it, because I think it'd be really cool. Wow. <laughs> you know, that, then I then I think, okay, we're, we're reeling them in on the line now. So... That's, those are some things I try and do. Those are fantastic. I'm stealing at least half of them. Fanta I'm taking <laughs> notes here from everybody else. <laughs> Anna? I, I think what, one of the things Janet's just said, it just is so amazing. It's, it's all about authenticity, isn't it? So people have to know that you care about this, that you're not just standing up in front of a group of people. Um, and also by allowing them to talk and ask and bring their questions, you're in, injecting nimbleness into your training. Um, and if people come with questions, we know that if you take a scan of the brain and, and you give people information, certain parts of, of the brain will light up. But if someone comes to a conclusion on their own, everything lights up. So if you've got someone who is is questioning and bringing a question into your training uh that that's great one thing i like to do is try and get people to be involved in the teaching i think i fail as a, as an instructor if i stand up and be and the only expert in the room because goodness knows who's in front of me and i've always always learned a huge amount from giving people topics or opportunities to speak or maybe even you know here's some information assemble a training on your own and then talk, do a mini toolbox talk to the group um, i only have a couple of rules everyone has to speak um, and it has to be informal so it takes that worry people can sit down and do it and I've always got a huge amount from it. And I think um, I just want to bring in that I, I think there is a need in our industry to look at training and coaching to actually bring in coaching into our um, training as well so that we don't just do that, that kind of transfer of knowledge, but it's about that sharing of knowledge. And I think, 
you know, if there's a failing in our industry, it's sometimes the idea that I've got the knowledge that you need. And that isn't satisfying. And Janet's nodding furiously. That isn't satisfying for anyone, is it, Janet? So It's true. And, um, you know, one of the things I used to be afraid of when I was doing training, especially if it was a topic that I had, you know, gathered the content, but, you know, it wasn't something I was expert at. I would, I would be very anxious about standing in front of a group and feeling that, like an imposter. Like, I, I don't know this answer. Or I say to everyone, does anyone have a question? And they throw me something that I don't know. And that used to be incredibly unnerving. But I think what's important about allowing that to happen is for everyone in the room to realize we are not all experts at everything. And sometimes I'll turn it back to the group and say, you know, what do you guys think? And if I don't know the answer, and if we haven't come up with anything, it's like, you know, where would we start? What would be a resource? Do we know someone? Who could I email? Who could I call? And to me, that's a really important thing for us to learn. It's not just the content. It's the skills about, um, you know, where would I seek this out? What would I do in the meantime? So I've, I've identified something that could be potentially really dangerous. So maybe we need to say to a director, whoa, you know what? We're going to need to take a pause on that. That's a great idea. Love the idea of you taking that cast iron frying pan and whacking Danielle over the head with it in the middle of that scene. I can see how that would be perfect, but we need to pause. We're going to get a fight director in. We're going to look at the prop. Um, but, you know, if we can get people started on um, how they approach a problem rather than just teaching them, here's six facts, then we've given them a bigger skill. And, and I do agree with you, Anna, you know, we have, we have experts in the room and I encourage people find out who's beside you, get their card, build your own panel of experts because you're going to need them and they're going to need you, which is cool. So, Earlier, while we were waiting to get online, uh, Steve and I were talking, and I was I was saying how I was a little bit nervous about this because I felt like that everybody is way more qualified on this topic than I am. <laughs> and he was explaining to me about imposter syndrome, uh, so I was like, "Oh, there it is again." Um, and I do feel like you know there are some extremely talented people on this podcast, and. Uh, I am learning a lot. <laughs> but we all feel that, you know, I think as right. soon as we understand that there's not a single person who's going to stand in front of a group of people who can say, I know more than every single person in this room. It just can't happen. It's not possible. And we ha that leaves us then open to learn and, and develop ourselves. Right. And something I've, I've realized is just because I don't know everything doesn't mean I don't know some things. And it's, both professionally and sort of um, morally, I have realized that it is it is my passion to make sure people learn more about these things, even if they are not learning, you know, the in-depth nitty-gritty of every single topic. If I can just raise their awareness on this might be dangerous to you or you might need to know how to do this, I have taught them something valuable, even if I haven't taught them the chemical formula of a specific chemical. Um, so that's all That's all great. So we've talked about HASCOM a couple times. Um, I'd like to move away from that. What, when you guys are teaching, what is the most important topic you want to start with? 
And I know that is huge. <laughs> so Anna is nodding emphatically. Mind blown. So what, what's the first thing you want to teach people? So um, so I'm, I'm looking at things in slightly different because obviously now I'm at the L School of Drama, I get the, the privilege of, of working with people over a period of time, right? So, but, but even if I was given one thing to talk about, I would talk about risk assessment. So listeners can probably tell from my accent that I'm a Brit. Um, and in Britain, the health and safety um, executive requires businesses to actually, as a legal risk responsibility, to um, mitigate against serious risks and to record that in a risk assessment. OSHA actually recommends it, highly recommends it as part of their safety and health program. Um, but but even if it even if it's not mandated, it's still a really brilliant way of approaching anything. And you know, I've heard Steve give a couple of, an, of fantastic lectures about writing an event plan. And he always asks, like, starts by asking the question, "What do you think is going to happen?" Like, like start with what you know. What do you want to do? What do you think is going to happen? Essentially, that's a risk assessment. We do risk assessments when we cross the road. You know, is it going to be safe for us? So we look both ways. That's our assessment of risk. And I think if you get people thinking in terms of hazards and thinking in terms of risk and thinking in terms of control measures, that then applies to everything else, be it fall, fall protection, be it HASCOM. Of course, there are specific skills you need. Um, but I think just understanding the principles of risk and, 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 and also being comfortable with the term risk because we are in theatre, right? I haven't found an OSHA code for working with a goat I have done many, many shows with goats and snakes and rabbits and pigeons. And, you know, uh, it, there is frying pans that get hit over the head. We need to be comfortable with knowing when to say, as Janet brilliantly said, when's that pause or when can we proceed? Um, so, yes, well, you, my you head is very passionate. You can just tell that. I mean, I, I'm just very passionate about this. So I think that would be my risk assessment is my first topic. I think that's fabulous. Um, and it, it brings in something that, that Steve has demonstrated beautifully in the past, which is situational awareness. You know, it's like if if you're aware of what's around you and what's going on, you're able to assess those risks in real time as you go. Janet, what about you? What do, what do you want to teach people first? Well, I am a giant, giant fan of risk assessment because i that's what we were searching for. So after our, our incident in 1995, we were trying to wrestle with how do we solve this? And it was actually not until seven years later when I attended an Opera America conference in which there were there was one um, safety person from an opera company in the UK who brought some samples of, it was John Seekings, he brought some samples of risk assessment. So it's like the skies open, the angels sang, because that was what we had been looking for. Uh, and it's so adaptable. But Anna has covered that beautifully. So I'm going to talk about what I think is really important. One of the things to start with is rights and responsibilities. Now, I get that every jurisdiction is a little bit different. I'm Canadian. I'm from Ontario. So we have three rights. The first is uh, the right to um, the right to know. So it means the right to know about hazards, to be trained, have information, the right to participate in um, dealing with health and safety concerns, often expressed through a joint health and safety committee, and the right to refuse unsafe work. So those are really um, basic things that people need to understand that they have those rights. But then we also, wherever you have a right, you have a responsibility. So that people understand that they have 
have individual responsibilities for their own safety, but also for um, for the safety of the people around them um, and trying to articulate how they can express those rights and responsibilities, the things that those imply. Um, I think that's that's something that I did not know until I stood in front of that group of actors trying to say, here's what we've all got to do, because I had never been taught that. So I think that's really key. We got to know where our place is. And, you know, um, you know, worker, supervisor, employer are the three big parties in, in my province. And they may be titled something else, but at least to understand if you're getting paid two bucks an hour more and you've got some people reporting to you, you have an additional responsibility for implementing a health and safety program and for enforcing things. You do not get to look the other way when one of your people shows up in Birkenstocks and a bare head to a, a big, you know, loan in. You, you don't get to do that, even though that might feel more comfortable. So there, that's where I'd start. And Janet, you know, I just wanted to jump on something you said that, um, you know, right to, right to know, um, and also, as you clearly illustrating, right to understand, which means we need to, as trainers, remove the barriers to participation, yes. and the barriers to, to understanding, which can mean, you know, we, circling back to Danielle's comment about different learning styles, you know, we have a huge proportion of our industry that are dyslexic. So yes. giving them a ton of stuff to read doesn't always work. We also have people that aren't comfortable talking in front of large groups of people because they are that shy stage manager that's working brilliantly in the dark. So making them the ones responsible can be tricky. And I think all of that kind of comes into that. It's very powerful that those three things that you mentioned. And training is a way to support people. You know, we want, especially people at the supervisory level and above, we want to support them in meeting their responsibilities. It shouldn't be like a trick. Oh, something happened. Did you know you were the supervisor? Did you know you were supposed to do these things? No, we need to be there for them to to help them grow their skills and to be successful. Um, it shouldn't I, be. I like find a, that, that that helps a lot later when you're like oh yeah i need you to wear your hard hat or no we need to put an extra brick on that or whatever it, it, everyone has sort of a common background and understanding and they may have you know it's, people make mistakes uh oh yeah sorry I, I forgot and they go and they do whatever um so having that common background helps everybody both the people enforcing the rules for lack of the lack of a better term, um, and the people who are supposed to create the magic that we are all trying to create. Um, so we've already sort of touched on this. Do you think that trainers need a specific qualification? Hmm. That's hard, right? <laughs> it is hard. It is hard. Because well, if the answers are terrible, we'll have Jacob edit it out. Okay, and, and he can edit it. Um, I think in terms of certain types of content, so when it's high-risk specialty skills, like I'll say rigging, work at heights, um, absolutely they must have the expertise behind that. Uh, I also think not everybody is is suited to training. Um, you know, I got there, I learned it, I became more confident, but some people I know who are brilliant, they just, they just wouldn't want to do it. Um, 
so I, I wouldn't want someone to s- decide they couldn't train because they hadn't been through an adult education program. Um, but, but so I think there, there are a couple of things. There's the skills of the content and the knowledge of the content. And there's also the sort of facilitation skills. And I think there are more people who are good at it, but they need to practice it. So, um, you know, I had people who kind of took me under their wing and I attended a lot of things and I wrote down every great idea I had and tried to steal it. Um, that was a really roundabout way of thinking, saying um, maybe, maybe they need to have training to do it in some case in yeah, I'll throw it to Anna. <laughs> My tongue got in knots. It's actually really interesting what you say, Janet. I don't think, I think you. I think this is sort of one of the things you were saying. Training for me is an innate skill, right? It can, it can be learned. It can be taught. It needs to be practiced. Um, so I think, um, you know, I, I, I think you can always learn and always grow. And I think um, you, absolutely you need to be a subject matter expert. If you're dealing with anything that's high risk, um, you need to be comfortable with it. You actually learn a huge amount about the subject in teaching it yourself. You learn what you, you learn what you know, which is why I always like to throw it over to, to people in, in, that are in the trainings with me to ask for their feedback, but also ask them maybe to explain it back to me because that's, that's another huge learning thing. And I think that speaks to the coaching idea. You know, sometimes if something is a high risk, you don't need a trainer, you do need a coach and that, that, that tailored approach, that peer to peer learning can be very, very powerful indeed. As long as you kind of know that everyone has that baseline, right? It's not, it's not really suitable for someone who's just starting out. Um, if we go back to my martial arts, you know, that's not your white belts, but as you move up through the different belts, depending on what colors, as you get to sort of green and brown, you know, that's, that's a lot more useful because under the watchful eye of a general supervisor, seeing people training each other just cements that workplace together. Um, so I think and, that and that's part of most martial arts, isn't it? Is the higher ranks starting to teach and you're basically training on how to train people. Absolutely. And I think the first time I led a class, I was, I was, uh, terrified I was shaking but I was being coached and watched by someone who could step sure. in to make sure that the people who were were kind of working with me weren't getting less of an experience um, but I learned a huge amount and then I think people then can reinforce that because I think one of the other problems with training right is that someone with Janet's skill comes in does a training goes away and people were like what was that thing she said that was so brilliant um <laughs> You know, and I know, I'm sure Janet, like me, you, you try and give extra support to, to, to the people you've just trained, but there's always that knowledge retention, which is something we have to, to take care of. Yeah, interesting. One of those learning styles from the very beginning was also you learn by teaching others. So that is absolutely a very valid valid uh we, we have this saying at yale which is uh, the very famous saying you know i hear and i forget uh, i see and i remember i do and i understand and and that is very powerful so yes um so how how often do we think we should do training this is a very leading question <laughs> and a bit of a rabbit hole so <laughs> So let's start. Anna. <laughs> I was really hoping you were going to start with Janet there. <laughs> well, let's start with she a little bit. Okay, so, so yeah. when it's something that is a high-risk hazard, 
I think training needs to be refreshed. So something like working at heights, fall protection, um, here in Ontario, we have recently had that regulated for us. Our Ministry of Labor established working at heights training, very generic. I wouldn't say it's a perfect program and it's highly, highly standardized. So it doesn't take in theater. It's, it's just working at heights, but you have to do it. If you're going to do any use, you know, use a fall protection system in any setting that is deemed to be construction, which load in, fit up, set up, lighting hang, tear down, strike is deemed to be, you have to do that one day working at heights training. And within three years, you have to do a half day refresher. So there are some things like that that are regulated. Um, there are other things where I think you sort of look at what people are going to be doing and you need to set a sort of a timeline for how frequently a lot of the training I recommend people redo um, every three years. But, you know, training is something that should really be responsive to what's going on. So you bring in a new piece of equipment. Um, I'm sometimes subversive about training. So sometimes training is not actually training. So if I'm working with an organization on, you know, we need to develop a document about scissor lifts that I'll sit down with the key people who are going to be using that equipment and say, here's a draft. Let's talk about it. Does it apply to this workplace? Is there anything we need to know? And usually, you know, there'll be some very animated conversation by the end of it, their suggestions are incorporated into the document. When we get around to training, they're already, like I've already sold them the, the, the farm, you know, they, they're on board. Um, and then they are more easily able to explain it to their coworkers, support it if there are changes going on. So um, I, I think you wanna make sure that if you're re refreshing training, that it is giving them something new, that it's that you're not just sort of grinding out the same um, thing that they did last time or people will just really tune out. But. Yeah. Sometimes we'll play candy trivia uh, during hurry up and wait, which is my term for a, a small training exercise. So we're all hanging around backstage in the blue lights and I'll ask them questions and things that theoretically they should know and people give me answers. And if they answer correctly, I throw candy at them badly because I'm an arts girl. Uh, <laughs> just not good at throwing, uh, but it's candy. So they forgive me. Um, but if somebody's doing a new task related to something they already know, we, so everybody gets trained about how the orchestra lift elevator works and the hazards of, you know, the big hole at the front of the stage and all that. Uh, if somebody is specifically tasked to being the person under the stage when the lift is going to be in motion with like an orchestra or whatever, um, they will get a separate training immediately prior to that. And they have to sign off on that they got it and, and all of that because they have a different level of responsibility um, as opposed to training everyone on that and then having no one remember it when they actually are taking on that specific responsibility. I've, I've had better luck with people knowing what they were supposed to do. Um, and just frankly, blasting people with tons of information. Well, I can say that I said it to them doesn't help me at all. And in the end, when they don't retain it, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what about you, Anna? 
Well, Daniel, I love that image of you um, asking the questions and throwing the candy. It's so powerful. In fact, you know, I'm the nerd that when we sit on an airplane to fly anywhere, reads the safety uh, thing and watches the the stewards, um, partly because I think they're doing a great job and I want to respect them, but also because uh, it's just that refresher. So I would say that, you know, learning should be constant. I think I think we forget why we're training sometimes. So I think our, our learning environment for for all our staff and for ourselves, we should always be trying to learn. And I think the candy idea is just a quick refresher is wonderful. I think Janet's right. Where there is a legal requirement, obviously you need to follow that. But I think that this gets into that interesting feedback loop. When we train people, how do we know that they have learned what it is? Your orchestra pit one is a great example. How do we know that they've learned what it is that we're trying to train them in? Um, and, and if they're not getting it, that training has to become more, more common, more frequent, which is perhaps where the coaching comes in, right? You, you, we've done this. Now we're going to have a few sessions of supervision before we let you say that you are competent, that, you know, obviously that word is very, very loaded. Um, <laughs> and legally loaded. And legally loaded. <laughs> and, and rightly so, rightly so. But I think, you know, um, you know, there's three years is often one, um, you know, but I, when I was in the United Kingdom, I worked at the National Theatre for many years. They had a fantastic program for um, AEDU, CPR, AED. Um, those of us who agreed to be trained were trained every six months. And although, thank goodness, I never had to actually use it on a human, um, after sort of my third year, I became much more confident with using the AED machine. And it has stayed with me because that retention has stayed. So I think the higher risk, you know, um, needs to be trained more frequently also depending on how often it's used right so if you train as we know with first aid which is a good example you train you never use it hopefully for three years and then it feels like it's brand new when you start with the training again um so i think that refresher retraining depends on how often those skills are, are that's why we don't retake driving tests unless we don't drive for many many years you know because hopefully we're practicing those skills all the time so if you had to start a training program from scratch where where do you begin Let's say you're listening to this and you're like, I really want to do this in my venue with my school group, with my tour. Where, where do you start? Because it feels overwhelming. I, I, I would certainly, if I can just jump in there, Janet, I would certainly say, you know, you need to know what you're training. Um, that sounds like an obvious thing, right? But but listeners will probably think, Janet's been talking about HASCOM and full arrest and rigging and everything. So, I mean, you could start with what are my highest risks? you know, what's the training that's going to be required on that. But I would also make sure that in any training that you're writing, check for understanding. Because sometimes we think we're writing a training uh, and we think we've got our message across and we found that what people are hearing is not actually what we want them to solve. Um, so, I, you know, I would say, you know, if start with your high risks. I mean, it's, it's quite simply, do people in your building, in your venue know how to get out? Um, and, and try to make early trainings fun so that later trainings, you know, if they need to, to, to dig in, I heard the event, uh, safety, um, this conference did a wonderful fire drill that everyone spoke really highly of, but what a great way to teach everyone how to have the importance of it. So maybe start with some high risks. I don't know what Janet thinks about it. I agree. Start with some high risks. Um, but first of all, figure out who you're training and what you want to cover, um, 
I, I often use PowerPoint, partly so that people have that visual and I can put pictures in. Partly it's for that, but partly it's for me because I really need to know exactly what I'm covering because as you can tell from this conversation, I am prone to tangent. Um, I do like to include stories. If someone gave me a whole day, I would have no trouble filling it. So if I know I've got two hours with a group, I need to be really certain that I know what I'm going to cover. I know what pieces I'm going to provide as resources. And uh, because, you know, in the early days, I would try to, I would try to put everything in, you know, I'd go, I got a half a day with stage managers. I'm going to tell them everything about legislation and risk assessment. And you'd go, whoa, like, you know, their brains explode at a certain point. So, um, which is gross. Yeah, it's not pretty at all. It's not pretty. So, you know, really focus on who who you're talking to, what you're planning to cover. Um, put your coffee break in there for sure, because you can see people squirming in their seats. So I give myself a slide where I think it's going to be, but I'll jump to it earlier if I can see they're getting wiggly. Um and work it out so that you can plan so that you are sure you're going to finish on time with time for questions and conversation. Cause if I get to, you know, 10 o'clock, I'm supposed to be done and I've still got 35 slides to go. That's just, that's just not really a, a good way to do it. I have experienced some of that cause you'll sometimes go off in tangents and they're important tangents, but um, make sure you can cover what you've decided to cover. Also find resources. So if you're gonna do ladder safety, get on online and find, cause there's tons of stuff online, um, tons of stuff through universities, especially where they'll post a lot of their stuff and you can see what other people are doing. Find the wording that resonates with you and your people. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, hopefully in the show notes, we'll have a list of some resources, uh, books, websites, things like that. The event safety guide, small plug. Uh, <laughs> if people have specific questions, go ahead and email us at info at eventsafetyalliance.org. And we will try to route your questions to the correct person. Um, one thing that is important to any training program, partly for COIA reasons, is documentation. Document that you actually did the training with the people that were in the room and also documenting what your program is so that you can prove that you are training these specific things. Uh, Anna, what's, what's some go-to methods you use for documentation? I try to keep it very simple and I try to do a couple of things with the, with the documentation. I use, I usually use a word document. I, I like to take a physical signature, but I also like to have an agreement between, cause I think a, you know, a training is, an, is essentially an agreement between me and the people I'm training that I have covered certain things. So I like to say, you know, I like to list in that, in that thing. Uh, these are the things I think I've covered today. Sign if you agree that I have covered those things, because it may be that the person thinks I haven't, you know, I've, didn't cover risk assessment properly, or I didn't, you know, so it's a, it's that moment. Um, and then I will take a, a, an image of that. And then I save that as a, as a document on my computer. So I can also call it up, um, and, and take an, and I use, um, a kind of a smart sheet, which is like an Excel sheet, which also keeps the time of, it keeps the dates. 
so that I can call up for organizations. If I'm training outside of Yale, here is where that person was trained and here's their signature to say they've done it. Um, you know, I don't like to be the safety police, but sometimes a signature is a very powerful way of proving to someone that they actually were in the room if they have forgotten. And if they've forgotten they were in the room, I think my training is going south. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's very important. And dating and dating and the, and the location of where you did the training. I think they're all, all things that you need to capture. And I love that, you know, you can do fancy things with spreadsheets and all of that, and that's great. But at a bare minimum, I'll have a training record which describes the type of training, trainer, date, uh, and then a list of names, and they put their signature to it. And then I'll typically um, attach the either the PowerPoint handout or um, or even an agenda. You know, like these are the things we talked about, partly so that then if I have to go back and do it again, I can go, oh, what did we do with that group? Oh, you know what? For this group, I want to add whatever. Um or at least because I have so many different versions of everything, then at least, uh, you know, we we were audited and it was important to be able to show here's what we did and here's the people who attended. And uh, and then you can, again, as Danielle said, you can figure out who was sick that day, who was on vacation, who do I need to cover off Who was on time. that call? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because we're still running a theater. Like, right. <laughs> you're never going to get everybody in one shot. You can dream, but you can it's not going to happen. Um yeah, I just want to say one, one quick thing, you know, uh, I, I think it's great if you can share the, the slides, but just know that if you're bringing an outside trainer, the slides are something that they've worked on is their intellectual property. So it, they don't have to give them to you. You know, sometimes uh, as well, my slides mean a lot to me. And in the moment I'm describing a picture, but giving them to people that weren't there or whatever, they're not going to understand in a few years time what that was. So I try and sometimes make a crib sheet, which has just got here are the, here are the points that I really, really want you to take away. Um, you know, I get asked, for PowerPoint slides, I don't mind the question, but don't be offended if the answer is actually I'm not going to give you these, or I'm going to give you a tailored version, um, because you know it is a person's sometimes it's a person's livelihood, and they take a lot of time and, and effort over the slides. I've recently started adding a copyright to the bottom of the slides. I don't know that that makes any difference, but um, and if I share them, I will do a, a, an adapted set um, with, and I'll send them in a PDF. So people may use the information, but at least it slows them down. Yeah, the power of a PDF. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been fabulous. I'm going to give everybody just a chance to have some closing words, and then we will wrap this up. Uh, I have just been totally honored to speak with you guys today, and I want to thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge, and I thank you in advance for the stuff that I'm stealing from you. <laughs> and it's you're welcome stealing, for the stuff you might be stealing. <laughs> you know, imitation, highest form of flattery. Indeed. So, Janet, let's let's start with you. What closing um, I have gone from being afraid of standing in front of people and doing training to finding it very energizing, um, and I... I love to do it because I love to see that it can make change, that people will, I'll run into them in other settings and they'll say, I remember you. And you know what? We're doing this thing that you talked about in our community theater, our professional theater, wherever it may be. Um, and I think it's a, it's such a, a way to respect the people who work for you is to, to get them, you know, and it's not always going to be me doing the training, but I'll find somebody cool 
often somebody I found through the ESA and say, will you come to my province and talk to my people? And they feel valued because we put that kind of expertise in front of them and we help them to polish their professionalism. So um, I'm a huge fan of training. I want to learn everything I can about how to do it better. And, uh, and I encourage other people to do it, just do it, start, you'll get better at it. Um, you can make a big difference by, by stepping up there and doing your own training over to you, Anna. I mean, I just you know, echo everything that Janet said. I've, I've hugely enjoyed this conversation today and a real huge thank you to the Event Safety Alliance for hosting it because I think we, we need to be talking about this. Um, I think as a trainer, stay hungry, stay foolish, as Steve Jobs said. Um, and I think, you know, remember that you're talking to people, be they fourth graders or, you know, higher up management. Feedback is so important. And don't just ask people, what did you think about the training? You know, get, I think that board game question, Danielle, that you were asked right at the beginning how would you learn i love those questions because people can't get them wrong one of my favorite questions that was given to me by professor tim marsh was you know if safety was an animal if your safety culture was an animal what would it look like and you get the most wonderful answers so maybe if you're you know if your safety training was an animal what would it look like is it an elephant you know reliable but a bit slow is it a squirrel all over the place and can't remember anything where it's buried I think just 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 remember that you're talking to real people and and keep them as involved in the training and uh, as Janet says, never stop learning. Yeah, I, I want to echo that the never stop learning, never never forget the the joy of learning and try to put that in your teaching. Don't be afraid of failing. I I have given some trainings and afterwards said that did not go well. <laughs> But you learn from that as well. In fact, you sometimes learn more from what didn't work than from what did, uh, which will make you better at training next time. If this is something that interests you, we'll be talking about it more at the Event Safety Summit later this month. And hopefully we will see some of you there. Our website has registration information if you want to get in under the wire. And... Uh, Steve, you want to close us out? Uh, yes. Um, first, thank you very much. Um, I think this has been an excellent discussion. Um, because I didn't have to do anything, I was taking notes. So I'm going to share just a few notes that I took, uh, you know, sort of apropos of Janet's comments. You're not going to get the PowerPoint, but we'll give you kind of a synopsis. So here's Steve Edelman's synopsis. Um, number one, no Birkenstocks or bare heads at load-in. I think that's an important one. Uh, number two, we're all imposters. Um, we can all learn from our peers and and that's just a beautiful thing about having conversations like this. We're all pretty smart, but we can all learn from each other. And I think that's universally true. Um, what makes a good trader? Well, at least two things. One, subject matter expertise. And two, and I think Anna did a great job talking about coaching skill, actually having some ability to nurture the learning process. Um, uh, a line that was uttered, which I have heard before and had the opportunity to look up during this podcast. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. I've heard that before. Apparently, it's Confucius, um, variously attributed to other more modern people. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. And the point of that is at least for adults, and I think for all people, 
experiential learning is the, the stickiest way to teach. And so for training, not just standing in front of the room delivering bolts of thunder from on high, but having people stand up, walk around, do things, play with the information that you're trying to impart is so important. I think that's just a brilliant point, and I'm glad that that came up today. Um, learning should be constant, and a fine way to supplement learning is candy. I think Daniel. <laughs> Throwing candy, particularly <laughs> soft candy, where no one will lose an eye, I think is a great idea. Um, and finally, the last thing in my notes is documentation. Document what was taught, even if you're not going to provide the slides, a synopsis, a summary, uh, the PDF version of the PowerPoint slides so you can protect your intellectual property. Document what was taught document who attended the training, those are really important. That kind of closes the loop so that there is a record, even after memories have faded, of who did things, who participated, and what did they learn. So those are my notes. Um, you certainly, you dear gentle podcast listener, don't need the benefit of my notes, but I figured there it is. Um, and at this point, I will conclude by thanking our excellent podcast host, Danielle Hernandez from Furman University. Also our panelists, Janet Celery from Celery Health and Safety, Anna Glover from the Yale University School of Drama, and of course, Jacob Warwick, who makes all the magic happen. Thank you, Jake, for doing the engineering and making us all sound smart um, and thank you to you gentle podcast listener for joining us for this episode we hope to see you in Lidditz, pennsylvania and if not catch us on the next event safety podcast be safe out there